The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. Welcome once again to the gathering of Harmony Bible Church. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord to worship Him this morning. Just one quick note. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to have a baptism service. So if there's anybody who's interested in following, following, not falling, following, <laughs> following the Lord in the waters of baptism, please uh, see me after the service or give me a call this week. I would love to talk with you further about that. Looking forward to that opportunity next week. Let's uh, go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. I thank you so much for the way you have called us together in a bond, a bond of love, and that we can come before you with boldness today, that we can come before you not because of us, but in spite of us, Uh, not because of who we are, but because of who you are, because of what you've done for us through your son, Jesus. God, we come to your word today and look for you to Guide us and direct us through it. We pray and ask your blessing as we seek to not only be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. God, may we not only see that which you are teaching to us, but may we live in light of it. May we apply it to our lives. God, I pray that as we look to your word, that we would be encouraged, that we would be blessed, but we would also be convicted. God, I pray for churches that are meeting up and down the coast and around the world this morning as well. I pray that they too would be worshiping you, that your, God, that your word would be evident and would be present, and that, God, you would be glorified, that they would worship you in spirit and in truth. God, again, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your promise that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We claim that promise now, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, as if you haven't noticed. We've been working our way slowly through 1 Corinthians, and Paul, again and again, he's been building on the Gospel, he's been talking about the Gospel, and he's moving to more specific issues. Uh, We talked last week, or the last few weeks, we've talked about sexual immorality, we've talked about lawsuits, and we're moving into the role of of marriage, Paul's teaching on marriage to the church in Corinth. And just by way of reminder, if you'll remember the church in Corinth, Corinth was a busy city. It was a very wealthy city. It was uh, a city where sexuality was very, uh, was very much a part of the culture, that immorality was very much a part of the culture. And that as this wealthy city that was very immoral, that as Paul had come to it, he preached the gospel, that lives were changed, that people became believers, they became followers in Jesus Christ, and the church was started, and Paul ministered to the church there. He pastored the church himself for about a year and a half before leaving. And now Paul writes this letter. You can tell as you work through 1 Corinthians that he's corresponding back and forth. And we don't have all the bits and pieces of this correspondence. Instead, what we see is we have half of a phone conversation, if you will. We don't know what the Corinthians wrote to Paul. We know what he wrote back. So if you can imagine you're listening to somebody talking on the phone and you're hearing half the conversation, that's kind of what we have here. But they're very clear instructions. And through that, we can kind of piece together some of what the Corinthians were saying to Paul. And we'll see that a little bit today. 
But today, as Paul focuses on marriage, the Gospel is no less present than any other time. It's not just rules about how we live, but instead it's all about what Jesus has done for us. What God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. So I want you to keep that in mind. So without further ado, let's look at our text this morning. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. text is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1-7. through Paul writes, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement, for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, Each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. One of the great things about preaching through books of the Bible is we're forced to deal with topics that we might not otherwise deal with. And you might be thinking if you haven't been in church for a long time or you haven't really looked at this text before, you might be thinking, are we really going to talk about sex in church? Well, I assure you the Bible is not just some book that has some cute little ideas about who God is that teaches us just theology without doctrine, without how to apply who God is and how He acts and how He works in our lives, without bringing it down to how we apply it to our lives. So when we talk about what the Bible teaches, the Bible touches on all aspects of our lives, and this is a major aspect of our lives, so the Bible actually deals with it in a lot of detail. I want to also warn you that today's text is not a full theology of marriage. This is not everything that Scripture has to say about marriage. It's not intended to be. Instead, Paul is addressing some specific issues, some certain Uh, teachings with regard to marriage, and that instead we are called to read Scripture, to study Scripture, to become familiar with all of Scripture, and then seek to let Scripture interpret Scripture and apply all of what Scripture says to our lives. So I'll try to make some cross-references, but I also want to say this is not everything that Scripture says about marriage. So let's dig right in. The first point in our sermon outline is number one, singleness is good. Number one, singleness is as good. Look at verse 1 with me again. Paul says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The Corinthian believers had obviously, as I mentioned, they corresponded with Paul in one or more previous letters. And it's likely that within one of those letters they had several slogans or several phrases that they used, as I mentioned last week, and that it's very likely that one of these phrases was this phrase, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. This phrase clearly means something more than just physical 
contact with someone of the opposite sex. Otherwise, when we uh, have our time of fellowship and we shake hands and we hug one another, we'd be violating Scripture. That is not at all what Paul is talking about. Instead, what's, what's being said here is the ancient equivalent of saying, make love. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a euphemism, a Jewish, Jewish euphemism for sexual intercourse. And this is evident in the Old Testament. It's evident in Old Testament texts such as Genesis 20, verse 6, where we read, Then God said to him, this is Abimelech, God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Speaking to Abimelech, he says, I did not let you touch her, Sarah. Right? And obviously the implication is not just physical contact, it's something greater. Again, in Proverbs 6, 26 through, or 27 through 28, we read, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. So again, we see this idea of a man who touches a woman, that touching a woman refers to something far greater than physical contact, but instead refers to sexual intercourse. While Paul is referring specifically to sex in this text, he's saying, Corinthians, you are correct. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. While he's saying that, we also need to remember that as we read on, he clearly says it is not good for married couples to abstain from having sex. So he says, on one hand, it's good for a man not to have sex with a woman. And then he says, and if you're married... It's not good, right, to not have sex. So the point is not that abstinence, if you are married, is good. His point is that it is good to remain single. So the question that should immediately jump into our minds is, how can Paul say this? How can Paul possibly say it is good to remain single? Because didn't God clearly, in Genesis 2.18, say, it is not good for man to be alone, right? He said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitor, uh, I will make a, helpable, a helper suitable to him. So how do we reconcile these two things? Well, the point of Genesis 2.8 is that it is generally not good for a man to be alone. The normative order of things is for men and women to unite in marriage and not remain single. However, Scripture also makes it clear that some are indeed called to live a life of singleness. I don't know about you, but I know that in my life, I do not function well on my own. I've told my wife, and this might, be, might sound a little funny, but I've said to my wife, I said, if you die, I'm bringing a date to the funeral. Right? That I do not function well alone. But God has called some to live a life of singleness. Look at Matthew 19 with me. Uh, Matthew 19, verses 3 through 12. If you want to turn there in your Bibles. Matthew 19, starting at verse 3, we read this Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? In other words, is it lawful to just divorce your wife because you no longer want to be married? Right? We might call that irreconcilable 
differences in today's vernacular. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That There's this connectedness, the eternal connectedness within the bonds of marriage that's representative of our eternal connectedness to God. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And the disciples say, how can you possibly be saying this? You mean i got to stick with this woman forever? Right? The disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to be married. Right? In other words, if that's what marriage is, it's better to remain single. But he, Jesus said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. He says, not everyone can remain single, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are those who are celibate by birth, is what that's speaking to. Those who are unable to physically uh, engage in sexual activity. There are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. Something that we don't see commonly practiced today, but maybe something that was uh, that took place in biblical times. Uh, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Those who abstain from sex, those who are celibate, those who remain single is what he's talking about. For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it, Jesus says. So Paul's point is that while most people will be married, some believers are called to remain single. The language of Jesus saying, those to whom it has been given, in Matthew indicates that such a calling is a gift. Those to whom it has been given to remain single. That it's a gift. It's a gift because, as Paul goes on to say later in 1 Corinthians 7, that those who are single do not need to be concerned at all with the things of the world, but they can serve God with undivided attention. He says they don't need to be concerned with the things of this world. They don't need to be concerned about being home at dinner time. They don't need to be concerned about having a house that fits the family. They don't need to be concerned about providing a retirement for their, for their or a, a stable income for the family the way they uh, the way they would if they were married. You see, being married and having a family is good, but it also limits in some ways the way someone can serve. It, it's it's not as though one who serves God serves God less by being married. It's just that the scope of their service might be more limited. In other words, it's no less important and no less of a service to God for Bill to minister to his family than it is for him to go to Africa and serve as a missionary. It's no less important, it's no less of service to God for him to care for his family. However, caring for and providing for a family may very well limit the scope 
in ways that he may serve. The other ways in which he may serve. It may very well limit him from going to Africa to serve as a missionary or other things. See, Jesus had turned Jewish tradition on its head with this kind of teaching. The Jews had come to believe that remaining single was a violation of the command to be fruitful and multiply. The Jews had come to believe that if you are going to be a good, faithful Jew, you must get married, you must have kids. So it's likely that there were some in Corinth who were pressuring other believers to submit to God and get married. How many of you have seen this? Submit to God. What is wrong? Just get married, right? When when are you going to get married? As though they were less spiritual for not being married. And then on the other hand, because the issue of sexual immorality had become such a problem in Corinth, because it was so much a part of the culture, because the pagan worship involved sex with pagan spiritual prostitutes, it's likely that many others began to think of sex in and of itself as sinful. And I think we actually see both perspectives in the church today, where we see both of these perspectives still very much played out. That some began to see sex as sinful in spite of the fact that as we saw last week, Scripture teaches that it is an act of worship whereby a husband and wife bring glory to God. It's every bit as much of worship as singing a hymn, as preaching a sermon, as taking an offering, as I said last week. I don't want to get too graphic here, but I oftentimes in premarital counseling, I'll say that it is an act of worship and Christ is present. That Christ is active, He's involved, He's present in the marriage bed. That He is pleased, well pleased by this act by a husband and wife. Because it brings glory to God. But thinking of sex as sinful meant that some in Corinth were saying, along with the disciples, they were likely saying, it is better. It is more advisable. It's more spiritual. Right? It's better for a man to remain single. It's better to avoid marriage altogether. Instead of getting wrapped up in this world of sex, it's better to just stay single. That's what spiritual people do. So on one hand, you have those saying, you want to be spiritual? Get married. And on the other hand, you have those who are are saying, you want to be spiritual? Avoid that whole realm. Stay single. Commit yourself fully to God. And dangerous assertions were being made. One camp saying, obedience means being married. And the other camp saying, it's better to remain single. But Paul says neither in 1 Corinthians 7.1. He says, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. It is good for a man to remain single. But he does not say that it is better. He says it is good. If someone is called to live a life of singleness, and I would argue whether for a period of time or for a lifetime, they should view it as a gift given by God. A gift whereby they need not be concerned with pleasing a spouse, but instead can commit everything, all they have, to pleasing the Lord. They should use that freedom that they have been given, the freedom to pick up and leave and go where they wish, eat when they wish, work as they wish, 
They should use that freedom to not seek their own earthly pleasure, but instead to seek God's pleasure. But rarely, rarely is singleness seen in this light. In fact, if anything, seen just the opposite. Rarely is singleness seen as an opportunity. Far too often, it's viewed as a curse rather than a gift. Or, in our culture, sometimes it's seen as an opportunity to please oneself rather than to please God. That it's seen as a gift, but it's a gift to just do as I want, to please myself and only myself. As Paul says, it's a gift, but it's a gift to be used for God's glory. So Paul says, it is good to remain single. It's an opportunity to commit time and energy and talents fully to the Lord. So having seen the first point in our sermon outline, number one, singleness is good. Now let's turn to the second point in our sermon outline. The second point is, number two, marriage is good. Number two, marriage is good. Look at verses 2-5 through five with me. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2-5. through five. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duties to his wife, and likewise also the, husband, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul makes it clear here that marriage plays a very important role in the battle against sexual immorality. It's important to note here that Paul does not address all the reasons for marriage here. As I said, this is not a theology of marriage, a full theology of marriage. He doesn't address all the reasons for marriage. We know from Scripture that marriage is meant to paint a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. We know that marriage is meant to display the Gospel to an unbelieving world by living out love and submission. We know that marriage is meant to provide an environment whereby we may make disciples, namely through raising our children. And we know that marriage is a means by which God grows and conforms us into the image of His Son. So marriage has many purposes, not all of which are addressed here in 1 Corinthians 7. Instead, Paul focuses in on these verses and he says marriage plays an important role with regard to personal holiness, with regard to sexual immorality. Paul says because of immoralities, and the plural of immorality is there, because of immoralities, because there's such an abundance of immorality, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The point is not that marriage serves only as an outlet for one's sexual desire. But that it is, in, it is one very important aspect of marriage. So it's not the only important aspect of marriage, but it is one very important aspect of the marriage relationship. John MacArthur says it well when he says, Paul's purpose here is to stress the reality of sexual temptations and singleness and to acknowledge that they have a legitimate outlet in marriage. That there's a reality that there's sexual temptations, especially with regard to those who are single. And they have a legitimate outlet in marriage because of immoralities. Because immorality exists, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. So in verses 
2 through 5, Paul gives three clear instructions that must be followed, I believe, in order for the marriage bed to be an effective tool in the battle against immorality. That if the marriage bed is to be an effective tool in the battle against immorality, Paul says these things are true. And number one is the marriage bed must be monogamous. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, Each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. You see, marriage is designed to be a relationship between one man and one woman. Now the Greek word for his own means that a man should have his own wife as opposed to someone else's. So he's saying you need to a man should have should have sexual relations with his own not someone else's wife. However, the context also makes it clear that his wife should belong exclusively to him that she is not to be married to more than one man. She is his own wife. For Paul goes on to say that he has authority, the man has authority over her body. The picture is not of sharing that authority with another man. But instead of full authority, it's an authority that is subject to God. Furthermore, the Greek word translated her own, and this is interesting, the Greek word translated her own, as in her own husband, is idios. And it refers to being the exclusive property of someone. And the same point regarding authority is made is that the wife has full authority over her husband's body. Not an authority that is shared with someone else. See, the marriage bed is meant in such a way that the man has authority over his wife's body and the wife has authority over the woman's body. Number two, the marriage bed is a duty, not an option. The text is clear. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. And likewise also the wife to her husband. It's not an option, it's a duty. The marriage bed is not a place where one seeks their own fulfillment, but where one fulfills the needs of the other. It's not about taking, it's about giving. See, selfishness selfishness and marriage don't go together. They just do not. And that's what's part of what's wrong with our culture is that we've come to this place where we believe that marriage is all about what I get out of it. Instead, marriage is all about giving. And I, I spoke of premarital counseling. And I, I'm not trying to be funny, but you sit, on, you sit behind a table or a desk and there's a couple and they look at each other and they think, oh, this person loves me so much. They think I'm wonderful. And you just want to slap them, right? Because they don't realize that it's a matter of minutes after they get married before they're at each other. It's a matter of minutes before there's some problem that's going to happen. Right? That it's a battle of two kingdoms in some sense. That when two kingdoms unite, that there's always going to be an opportunity for one person to want their way and the other person to say, that's not exactly what I was thinking there, honey. Right? That they, there's this idea that we're just going to get married. They're going to love me. They're going to see how awesome I am. Right? And it's just going to be so good. And you just you want to smack their heads together. And, and you, know what, you know what you do? You provoke them. You try to get them to fight because you want to see them fight. You want to help them realize you're going to fight. Right? 
Because selfishness and marriage don't go together. You need to help them see it's, you can't be selfish. That if you're going to be married, that it's all about giving and giving and giving and giving, right? And giving. That that's what marriage is about. And in the same way, selfishness and the marriage bed don't go together either. That you cannot be selfish and think that the marriage bed is all about pleasing yourself. It's not the intent. In Romans 12.1, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. See, followers of Jesus are called to present their bodies to God as a living sacrifice. That He has ultimate authority over us, over our bodies. And just as sexual intimacy is a picture of Christ's forever connectedness to us, so also the authority that a husband and wife have over each other's body points to the believer's submission to God. That it is indeed a play, much like we'll celebrate communion in a few minutes, and it's a play. It's we're painting a picture. Right? We're in drama class all over again in some sense, that we're we're depicting what Christ did for us. And in the same way, sexual intimacy is the same thing. It's a picture of Christ's connectedness to us, our forever connectedness with Christ, but it's also a picture of our submission to God. I think it's important to realize the cultural significance of what Paul was saying here. Paul doesn't say, a man has authority over his wife's body. Paul says, a man doesn't have authority over his own body, but his wife does. And a wife, a woman, doesn't have authority over her own body, but her husband does. To take in this culture... And to say that a woman has authority over a man's body. right? For those who say Paul is a sexist, for those who say that the Bible is antiquated, for those who say that the Bible does not speak to our culture, that it demeans women, have, those people have not read the Bible. That the Bible is clear. That Paul is clear. That Paul is turning everything on its head. And he says a woman is to have her own husband and she has authority over his body. That body belongs to her. See, marriage, the marriage bed, is not a duty. It's a duty. It's not an option. Number three, the marriage bed must be a priority. The marriage bed must be a priority. Unfortunately, many in our culture and even some in the church view sex as a necessary evil. It's something that's viewed with shame and secrecy. It's something that maybe we joke about. We watch primetime TV and they joke about and we kind of joke and laugh and tee-hee. But ultimately, it's viewed with shame and secrecy and simply not talked about. It's either talked about in a crass way or it's not talked about at all. And that is incredibly sad. For God created them both male and female and it was good. You see, the Bible has a great deal to say about marital intimacy. Yet it appears that some in Corinth Corinth, were not only advocating staying single, but also advocating celibacy for those who are married. That maybe some in Corinth were saying, you know, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Even for those who are 
married, especially maybe to those who are married to unbelievers. And I would encourage you, for those who are married to unbelievers, this text doesn't change. It's not, if you're married to a believer, the text is, if you're married, your spouse has authority over your body, right? And then maybe there were some who were married to unbelievers who they became believers and they said, I'm not doing that with him, right? I'm not, no, no, not with her, right? He says, the marriage bed must be a priority. See, it's incredibly sad that we view sex with shame and look at it and think about it as a secret act. For God created them both male and female, as I said. Yet it appears that within this, some were advocating celibacy for those who were married as though deprivation was an act of godliness. That somehow by no longer participating in this act, they were becoming more godly. Maybe it was two believers who were saying, you know, we're going to deprive ourselves of this, this thing, which is animalistic, right? Which is, the food is for stomach and the stomach is for food, as we said last week. Maybe some were saying that and saying, that's just an earthly function, not me, I'm too spiritual for that. They were thinking that deprivation was an act of godliness. In reality, though, as we discussed last week, sexual union within marriage is an act of worship. And it is something that is to be pursued, not avoided. It's not a necessary evil, but instead a spiritual priority. In fact, Paul says, Stop depriving one another, except by agreement, for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. The only reason for physical intimacy and marriage to pause is for a devoted time, a prearranged, predetermined length of time of prayer. That's what Scripture says. The only reason is for a time of fasting, a time of setting it aside for prayer. Just as one fasts from food, the purpose of doing so is not to deprive oneself of that which is bad. Right? Food is good. The purpose is to willingly forsake food for a short period of time to focus on that which is extremely important so that one's heart and mind can be turned to God in prayer. Right? It's so that when you don't eat, when you fast, and if you fasted for any period of time, when you fast, you realize that the hunger causes you to remember your fasting. Right? That it serves a purpose. That you go, Ooh, I haven't eaten today. I'm hungry. Oh, yeah, I'm fasting. Right? Got to pray. That it serves its purpose. It directs your mind back to prayer. And Paul is saying the very same thing about sex within marriage. He says the only way, the only reason for a husband and wife to stop coming together is for a short period of time, a prearranged period of time, that they agree on so that they may pray. And when fasting is over, right? When you fast and pray, what do you do? What are you happy to do? Return to eating quickly, right? Because eating food is good. And in the same way, Paul says, after this time of prayer, come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Don't think that you can do this forever. Don't think you can go without eating forever, right? Instead, make this a priority. You see, apparently some in Corinth were depriving their spouses of marital intimacy. And Paul says, stop. Stop. One of the things that drives me crazy 
in the Christian church is when married couples talk about separation. I'm going to say it now before it becomes an issue because somebody's going to inevitably at some point going to say, well, we decided that we're going to separate for a while because we need to work on some things. And I'm going to say, you're being disobedient to 1 Corinthians 7 unless you have determined a length of time that it is purposeful for prayer that if you forsake the marriage bed, other than that, it is disobedient to Scripture. But here's the problem. Most people, when they come and they say, you know, we've decided we're going to separate for a while because we need to work on these issues, this has long been forsaken. That this is something that was forsaken a long time ago. That they're not forsaking it now, they've been forsaking it forever. Paul says, stop. See, I believe separation is just a further step in disobedience. And I'm not saying for one's physical safety, there aren't times where somebody has to be removed from a situation not saying that, but I'm saying oftentimes when conflict arises, pulling a married couple apart when Scripture says you must remain connected is a problem. So separation violates this very thing. Don't forsake the marriage bed. Instead, come together. Only separate for this specific purpose for a period of time for prayer, and then come together quickly, lest you be tempted. Marriage is good. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians 7, his point is that one of the major advantages of marriage, one of the major advantages, one of the things that makes marriage good, is that it can be an effective tool in the battling against immorality. So having seen, number one, singleness is good. And number two, marriage is good. Now we turn to the third and final point of our sermon outline. The third and final point is, number three, God is the giver of good gifts. God's the giver of good gifts. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that Paul says, I concede that singleness is good. And I concede that marriage is good. Now the word concede or concession here means to be in agreement. So we might get the wrong idea when we read this in English, but Paul's saying, I am in agreement. Marriage is good. I'm in agreement that singleness is good. And he says, yet, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. See, Paul was likely married and either a widower or his wife left him. That Paul, if he was a member of the Sanhedrin, we don't know for sure that he was, but if he was a member of the Sanhedrin, likely he was, marriage was required. That he would have been married, and yet he doesn't seem to be married in the New Testament. That he even says, I wish that they were as I am, implying single, implying unmarried. So Paul is either a widower Or here's a crazy thought that we often don't think of, that his wife left him. Maybe Paul became a believer and she was like, whoa, I don't know about this Jesus stuff, right? You were like a Pharisee. And now you've joined this cult and you've gone crazy, right? And she leaves. We don't know. We can speculate all we want. But Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I. What Paul is indicating here is that he wishes that those who are single would see their singleness as Paul did. 
as an opportunity to live for the Lord with reckless abandon. Paul isn't saying, you should be single, because it's awesome. You know what? The other night, I didn't come home at all. Right? He doesn't say, you know what? Being single is so great, I haven't eaten for three days. I've lived off from diet Pepsi. Right? Instead, his point is, I wish you all were like me. Because you can live for the Lord with reckless abandon. I've been here. I've been there. Turn in the back of your Bible sometime and look at the missionary maps of Paul. He's all over the place. Right? He's not thinking, I've got to get home at 6 o'clock. Kim's got dinner on the table. Right? He's thinking, where's the Spirit going to take me next? You see, he wants them to see that freedom from singleness affords one a unique opportunity in service to the Lord. However, however, Paul also says, each man, he says, however, each man has his own gift from God. He says, I wish that all of you were like me. However, however, and hear this, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. In other words, some of you have been given the gift of singleness. Use that for God's glory. Some of you have been given the gift of marriage. Use that for God's glory. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, What man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? God is the giver of good gifts. And for some, that's the gift of being single. And for some, it's the gift of being married. So review. Singleness is good. Marriage is good. And God is the giver of good gifts. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically, apply all of this to our lives? How do we take this and apply it to our lives? Well, number one, we need to praise God for the gift of His Son. We need to praise God, the giver of good gifts, for the gift of His Son. Recognize that God is the giver of good gifts, that He loves us, He cares for us, that He brought us into salvation. The Scripture says, if He did not withhold His own Son from you, how will He not also freely give you all good things? If you're a believer, rejoice. Rejoice in the Gospel that God has given you grace Grace to live lives that honor Him. So praise God, the giver of gifts, giver of good gifts for the gift of His Son. And number two, we need to glorify God with our lives, whether single or married. Mark Coons has a saying that he's repeated many, many times to me. He said, you know, marriage is like flies on a screen door. Those who are in want to get out, and those who are out want to get in. It's sad. It's really sad. His point is that it should not be that way. That it should not be that way. That whether we're single or married, we're called to glorify God with our lives that recognize the gift we've been given and live for His glory in our singleness. Live for His glory in our marriages. Number three, we need to lift each other up in the process. That singles should encourage married couples. Right? I can pick on Mark because he's not here. What does Mark pray for every Tuesday night? Married couples. Married couples. 
that God has given him an opportunity, a a mind to pray for married couples. And we need to pray for singles. We need to encourage them in their singleness. That we have a mixture of both those who are single and those who are married in this church, and we need to encourage each other. You're single? Glorify God. You're married? Glorify God. We need to encourage each other. We need to pray for one another. And then we need to hold each other accountable for using the gift, the gift of singleness, or the gift of marriage that we've been given. We need to ask each other, how are you glorifying God? How can I help you glorify God in your marriage? How can I help you glorify God in your singleness? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? I want you to know you're an inspiration to me that you serve God in your marriage. And that means a lot to me. That you serve God in your singleness. And that means a lot to me. That you are an encouragement, a blessing to me. We need to encourage one another. We need to pray for one another. And we need to hold each other accountable as we do that. Father God, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for the way You love us, the way You care for us. Thank You for Your Son, Jesus. Thank You that You are the giver of good gifts. Thank You that we can come to You and say, that whether we're single or we're married, that we recognize that You have called us to a place, to a position of that status for Your glory, that You have called us to use our marital status to seek Your kingdom, to pursue You more fully in our lives, to live for You and for Your glory and not our own. God, I thank You for an opportunity to reflect on the fact that singleness is good. That marriage is good because You are the giver of good gifts. Help us to not long for that which we do not have, but instead glorify You in that which we do. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Pauley, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.